Welcome to Animal Health Insights. This podcast was created to connect producers, veterinarians, and animal owners, and to introduce you to the people and the organizations who are working to support animal health in Canada. Our podcast is developed with the support of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Todd. Let's get started. For the past number of years, wildlife research has been underway to investigate the movement and the spread of wild pigs in North America, and specifically in Canada. Wild pigs, whether they are natural to a location, such as wild boar in Europe, or whether they've been introduced, which would be pigs that might have escaped from farms, they're known to wreak environmental havoc across all types of landscapes, and they can be really difficult to find, let alone to manage, once they're established in an area. Mr. Corey Kramer, previously a master's student from the University of Saskatchewan and currently an ecology and conservation PhD student at San Diego State University, investigated habitat use and selection of wild pigs in Canada as part of his master's studies. He shares the findings of this work with me today on Animal Health Insights. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Kramer. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Corey, can you tell us a bit then about why wild pigs are so interesting? And why are they a concern? Yeah, of course. So there's a lot that kind of goes into both of these. Uh, I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. So why are they interesting? Well, pigs, they're so dynamic, I think, as an animal. They're habitat generalists, so they take advantage of a wide array of habitat types. They can have a wide array of diets. Behaviors can differ depending on a whole bunch of different native and anthropogenic pressures. And then on top of that, they're also what we consider ecosystem engineers. And so what they do is they maintain and modify ecosystems. So in, in Europe, their rooting behavior, so this is where they dig up the ground. Plants are adapted to that, so it serves a specific kind of function within the landscape and the ecosystem. We're here in Canada as ecosystem engineers. The plant life isn't as adapted to that. And so it has detrimental effects to, you know, the landscapes and the ecosystems. And so they're just really dynamic, interesting species where there's a lot to study And there's a lot to look into, which makes them fun. As for the concern, well, there's a laundry list, if we're being frank. So they have particular risks to ecology if you're looking at predation of native species, outcompeting native species, disease transmission for native species. I already talked briefly about the habitats destruction through rooting. They also are a risk to agricultural crops. Depredation is common everywhere pigs are globally. There's a lot of literature on that, but you know, they can also trample crops. Again, I've seen cornfields in particular rooted up in Manitoba doing field work. So that's just the impacts to the agricultural sector. If you start looking at, you know, livestock, there's plenty of risks with pigs with, again, disease transmission and interaction with livestock within grazing areas. They can get into pens. They're smart. You know, there's plenty of evidence of livestock harassment in the U.S. and globally. So There's a lot to be concerned about, potentially, especially as these pig populations continue to grow. They're also really good at breeding. Theoretically, with a gestation period of 120 days, they could breed up to three times a year. Two is more than likely, but still with a litter size of, you know, four and a half to five and a half piglets and no real natural predators here in Canada or anywhere for that matter. I think wolves in Europe make up the largest amount of predation for wild pigs And that's predominantly juveniles, and that's only 20% of, like, the death scene within Europe. So it's a really small percentage. There's no real native predators. They can reproduce, like, rabbits, I guess, if we use a pun. So they have the ability to explode in terms of 
population size. So it's this weird blend of R and K characteristics, even though that isn't that biologically, you know, sound of reasoning. Also, breeding is tied, you know, potentially to weight gain. So maturation isn't necessarily a age stage. It's based more on how much weight the animal can gain. And so there is some risk that, especially in agricultural environments where it's more or less a buffet, pigs are going to be able to gain weight sooner, which makes them more likely to reproduce sooner. And again, with four to five young, a couple times a year, you can see how populations get out of hand pretty quickly. And again, they eat everything. And I literally mean everything. If they can get their hands on it or mouths, I guess they don't have hands. Uh, they're probably going to take advantage of it. Essentially, every agricultural crop found within their global extent has been found in a wild pig diet. So if it's there, they will take advantage of it to ensure they're getting the adequate nutrition they need to continue breeding. They're also super hardy. Pigs are poor thermoregulators, so which is kind of their one weakness, I guess I would say. They don't sweat and they don't pant. So they are dependent on wetlands and shade to thermoregulate. But also in an area like Canada where it doesn't get that hot and winters are super brutal at times, well, a lot of the times it seems, I surmise that being a poor thermoregulator is probably helpful. Being so big, so hairy, and not being able to dissipate heat keeps you warmer during the winter. Also in Saskatchewan, they burrow under cattails in wetlands during the winter, and then they kind of create this little cove to stay warm as a group. So, that, I mean, that's just some of the concerns and the risks environmentally and agriculturally, livestock-wise, ecologically. There's a whole laundry list of, of issues that pigs contribute to, and so that's why we've been so concerned you know, at the University of Saskatchewan and within our lab of, you know, let's start getting management going ASAP in hopes that we can kind of curb some of these issues as populations continue to expand and explode. And what do we know about them at this point to begin with? Yeah, so that's a great question. Honestly, not a lot. We haven't been studying them in Canada for very long. We didn't get them to the country until the 1980s as an attempt to diversify livestock. And then uh, the market crashed in the 90s. And that's kind of how we ended up with escapes and intentional releases. We do know, based on kind of the preliminary work that we've done so far, that they're spreading rapidly. Um, if you look at my colleague and friend who just finished her PhD, Ruth Cost, I guess her last name's Asham now, but uh, she has a very popular paper looking at the spread of the species since their inception into the country. And then my work has been focused primarily on ecology. So we know that they're very cryptic. We've tried to tell hunters when they've asked where they're at. You can go out there, but doesn't necessarily mean you're going to find anything. And it's it's rather difficult, even if you know exactly where they're at. When we were doing work in Manitoba, we had GPS collared some pigs and I got to go in the helicopter and we were flying around and we were hovering 10, 20 feet above the ground. We knew the pig was there and we still couldn't see it. So it's difficult to find them, even if you know where they're at, coupled with the fact they're primarily nocturnal here in Canada. And they tend to be nocturnal in a lot of places. A lot of that is driven by anthropogenic activities like hunting and farming. They tend not to want to be around people. And they tend to be most active when people aren't active. It just reduces stress and it reduces the potential for being killed, essentially. Since they're so novel in Canada, it is difficult to kind of pull from different areas of the world. Europe is probably our closest comp in terms of extrapolating how they might behave here in Canada. It's tough to look at the southern U.S. just because different climate, different habitat types. So a lot of our work has kind of been based on looking at how pigs in Europe have been behaving. But again, it's hard to, it's hard to extrapolate a new invasive species to a novel ecosystem. We're doing our best with that, but 
what we really need to do is more work here in Canada. And that will hopefully answer a lot of questions about the dangers, the issues with pigs and how they're going to impact the environment, wildlife, the agricultural sector here in Canada. So when you started working on this research project, why was the wild pig habitat selection the piece you felt was most interesting or important to learn about? So funnily enough, when you get into grad school, a lot of people will tell you that studying what you want to study is kind of the key piece, especially for your master's degree. So I originally didn't really have any specific, like, I wanted to do habitat selection. I knew that, but it wasn't necessarily like, I want to do this with pigs and I want this to inform, you know, management decisions. That wasn't really the goal. It just kind of happened to work out that way. I just knew I was interested in habitat selection, but it did work out really well because we didn't really have a lot of ecological evidence of what pigs were doing within Canada, again, up till this point. And so I look at habitat selection kind of as the corners to a puzzle piece. It's not the most glamorous. It's not the most fun thing, but it does give you a good basis of where to start. And I mean, I find it interesting. It's why I study it and I continue to study it. If we know what habitats the pigs are using, we can then look at the research elsewhere. Again, I'm going to point to Europe and say, okay, based on what we know about pigs in Europe and pigs pretty much everywhere, what could we be seeing in terms of behavior, what's going on in specific habitats, and then start to extrapolate that. And then we can start getting into more micro scale stuff, looking at different behaviors, different selection. You know, we can go as far down as how do pigs impact plant species or even the soil. So it just gives us a good basis to understand pigs in Canada, where we can start to extrapolate on different questions moving forward. Can you tell me about your research methods then for this project? Yeah, of course. So a lot of the field work was done before I actually got here, which made my job a little bit easier that I didn't have to go out and collar the pigs myself. So we use Talonic and Vectronic GPS collars to collect GPS satellite data. So how we do this is we have a helicopter and a net gunning crew. And uh, what they do is they fly around, we find pigs, they shoot a net gun, they land the helicopter, they hop out. You hog tie the feet together so the pigs can't escape. You then put the collar on. We then take a bunch of other samples, hair, blood, fecal, ear tags. Just while you have the animal, you might as well take as many samples as possible to reduce the number of captures you need and the amount of stress on the animal. And this is all done in, you know, five minutes. So the good thing is it really reduces the stress on the animal as opposed to some other methods. So it's really handy. The only issue with pigs is that they have necks that are bigger than their heads. So we do lose a fair amount of collars in terms of slippage. But it's a fine line between putting the collar on tight enough that it stays without hampering the animal and not putting it on too loose where it comes off. So um, it's difficult and we do our best. And then using that GPS data, I ran what's called the step selection function. So we have fixes. So we get a location for a pig every three hours. I would have loved for it to be every hour, but I wasn't there for planning or design. So we do the best with what we got data wise. So every three hours we get a location and what we do is we use what are called steps. So this is a straight line distance between successive GPS locations. So we have a GPS location, a straight line to the next GPS location, and then we use turn angles. And the turn angle is the angle which the animal move between three successive steps. You have a location, a line, a location, a line, and a location. And then that angle is the turn angle. We then pair these, what we're going to call used turn angles and steps. So these are the angle or the steps and turn angles the actually the animal actually used, and we pair them with available steps and turn angles. And we use what's called a gamma distribution. In a nutshell, that's just there are more short steps and there are long steps. So when we randomly apply these steps 
and turn angles to each GPS location. It tends to take less drastic turns and shorter steps. And then we'll pair that along with medium and then larger ones uh, more rarely. And then what the analysis does is it compares the step and turn angles the animals use to these potential other ones it could have taken to determine habitat selection for us. That is super interesting and I feel like quite spatial. I'm trying to kind of picture this as you're as you're describing it. Yeah, the great thing about a step selection function in comparison to like a resource selection function, both have their place. But with the step selection function, we allow the animals to define the spatial component, like you said. So the animals determining kind of the boundary that we're using, whereas an RSF, we as the researchers get to decide. And some of those can be a bit arbitrary when you start looking at like national parks, state parks, uh, provincial parks, provinces, where they're human mediated boundaries that really don't make sense to the animal because the animal doesn't visualize or know those are a thing, but that's how we're studying it. So with the step selection function, we kind of take that out of our hands and let the animal decide the spatial component. So it's really nice. So it sounds like then there are some wild pigs out there that we are able to track or to identify their location still if they're wearing GPS collars. What are we learning or what have we learned about where these pigs are located in Canada? We're continuing to learn, which is the great thing and also the awful thing, because that means pigs are spreading. So again, we're still in the initial phases of learning about pigs in Canada. We have a long way to go. Thankfully, I know my former advisor, Dr. Ryan Brook, just got some more grant money from Alberta. So there's going to be some continuing pig research in Alberta here coming up soon, which is great. Obviously, we need it to continue to understand the species um, and the impacts they're having the great thing, though, and I would encourage anybody who has cited a pig here in Canada to send him the information. We keep a database of all sightings within Canada that people send us, and I can tell you that information does go to good use. My other paper, which should be resubmitted for publication here by the end of the summer, uses the sighting data from the public to validate the results from our GPS data. So it is getting put to good use. We don't actually have anything on, say, like iNaturalist. But if you email my advisor, Dr. Ryan Brook at University of Saskatchewan with the GPS location where the pig was found and any information you can give, that does go into our database. And then we can continue to understand the spread of pigs and then eventually the ecology of pigs and the impacts they're going to have on Canada. Yeah, that that should be great. And I guess a little bit intimidating as we see them continue to move around and to roam. I know there are some provinces as well that have some reporting numbers, so I'll try to find some of those to share with our listeners as well. I've noticed that in studies, these wild pig sightings, they are usually organized or mapped by the watershed location as opposed to a specific county or town or region. Can you explain why this is? Yeah, so it's not really my expertise. Honestly, our PhD student, Ruth Cost, or Asham, again, I keep forgetting she's married now, or my advisor, Dr. Ryan Brook, would have a better answer for you. I can give you the best answer possible. When you look at watersheds, it is an ecologically driven boundary. So that might be one reason where it is less inclined based on you know, human-mediated boundaries like a county where there is some ecological relevance to it. Secondarily, depending on the amount of data you have, if you get into too fine of a sca spatial scale, like county or even further down, you can start losing interpretability of your analysis. So it's probably a twofold thing between being more ecologically relevant than a county line, let's say, again, where the animals don't recognize it. I mean, they don't recognize the watershed boundaries either, but there is an ecological relevance to the watershed boundaries. 
And then also it's probably a data limitation where you need a more macro look just because there isn't enough fine scale data to parse out a finer spatial scale. So what did you discover then about the habitats that wild pigs utilize? So we made some really important discoveries. So just kind of up top to give a brief overview, I would say of you know the nine habitat groups we used, forest and corn are by far and away the two most important to pig ecology. And then you start getting into your wetlands, wheat and oil seeds. So canola in particular, in this case, as kind of, you know, three, four and five. So when you look at the daily or deal selection, which is just a fancy word for daily, we see that corn and forest are the only two habitats that are selected for at night and during the day, which again, really drives home the importance of both of these to pigs. I've kind of coined this term for, you know, it's this triad for pigs between the importance of habitats determined by cover, thermoregulation, and high-quality food sources. Habitats that provide all three of those tend to be the habitats that are most used and selected for. So again, that's why we're seeing such high selection for corn and forest. Other trends we're seeing, wetland is also selected for as a kind of a secondary cover habitat during the day, but is during the day not so much as night, where all of our crops then are selected for at night but not during the day. So we can see that there is this dichotomy where pigs are coming out at night to use all the different crop types we have in Saskatchewan, but then during the day tend to go towards habitats that provide better cover and then thermoregulation from the daytime sun, even though it doesn't get that hot in Saskatchewan. But then when you look at the use rates, and so selection takes into account its use with accountability for availability of habitats, where use is specifically just looking at the number of GPS locations we have in a given habitat divided by the total number of GPS locations. So it just gives us this raw use rate for the number of locations found within each habitat type. You see that forest is by far and away the most used habitat at 50 to 60% of the time, both at night and during the day. Wetland then is, is the second most used habitat. And then we get into our non-cover types where wheat and canola are three and four, and then corn is like sixth. So again, when you look at the use rates daily, you'd say, ah, well, corn isn't that important, but considering there isn't that much corn on the landscape and we see our highest selection values for corn, that means that pigs, when they do find corn, they're readily taking advantage of corn. Whereas for these other more available crop types, while we find more raw locations in there, the selection isn't as high, so they are taking advantage of them, especially at night, but not necessarily to the extent they are of corn when they come across corn. So then when we shift to the seasonal period, so this is looking at the months of April to November, we see selection for corn and for forest is most strong. Forest is selected for every month, while corn is selected for every month except for June and July, I believe. I'd have to go back and look at the charts. But no other habitat type is really selected for during that time period. We see a small amount for wheat and we see a small amount of, for wetland, but most stuff tends to be avoided at this more broad temporal scale. But when you start looking at the use rates seasonally, you start to see some interesting trends. So use rates, so again, this is the number of locations found in a habitat divided by the total. We see that for all of our crop types use peaks in August and September. We see our highest rates in August and September when crops have matured, provide the best cover, provide the best thermoregulation, and provide the best quality nutrition. But then we see a dip in these cover habitats, so specifically forest and wetland, but you can also see it some in grassland. Prior to seeding and during seeding and then after harvest, use isn't as high for these crops, but you do see 
peaks again for cover. All right, so, you know, to conclude kind of all of that, I would say that corn and forest are by far and away the two most important habitats to pigs in terms of, you know, their use and selection. Overall, we're seeing crops are selected for more at night and when they're, and they're used most when they're fully mature, while cover habitats tend to be used and selected for year round, but they do show a bit of a dip once plants are fully mature, which to me highlights their increased quality of cover and thermoregulation, but also forage quality. Could this information about wild pig habitat selection assist farmers and crop growers to help protect their crops from wild pigs? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I you know, that wasn't initially kind of the goal, but as you kind of start doing it, you realize like this does have implications for planning strategies, right? Like the the initial goal of this study was to help eventually inform management strategies, but also that same information can be used to inform planning strategies as well. Pigs in Canada, at least within Saskatchewan where we studied them, seem to still be very reliant on broadleaf forest as their main cover habitat. So any crop that's planted close to broadleaf forest is probably at risk in some capacity, especially again because pigs are coming out at night to feed on crops. They're not out during the day, so you're not going to see them in your fields as much while you're doing any of your planting or seeding or maintenance in the fields. They're going to be out at night. So I know that's kind of been a point of conversation with, you know, landowners who are planting crops is that they're like, well, I'm not seeing pigs. So how do I know they're damages by pigs? When I see damages, I saw, you know, let's say elk in my field. I'm going to attribute it to elk. Potentially, yes. But you got to remember, again, pigs are coming out at night. So you're not going to see them. And the damages look, you know, unless you know exactly what you're looking for. And even then, it's hard. I can tell you from firsthand experiences, you can't necessarily point to it being elk or it being pigs. Again, I would emphasize that any crops next to forest and as well as wetland too are probably at some sort of risk. Wheat and canola, just because they're such big crops within Saskatchewan, are always going to be at risk. And you see them pretty consistently consumed elsewhere, especially in Europe when they are planted. So it's not a surprise that those crops would also be at risk. Corn just in general, especially with the growing populations of pigs, it's just that pigs, when they find corn, they take advantage of corn. Uh, we did a symposium in 2019 and I had a map up and it showed, I think, a three-month to four-month span of a pig using a single pixel of corn for almost a month's worth of time in terms of days over that three-month period, just coming back and forth every couple weeks uh, to take advantage of it. It's a, it's a tricky game. You know, I don't want to tell anybody what to do or what's best for them, obviously, planning-wise, but pretty much anything next to broadleaf forest, canola, wheat, and corn is kind of that that danger zone, I guess I would say. Well, that's fair enough. There's there's certainly many factors that go into deciding what to plant on a field. And, you know, I'm not a farmer myself. I can't state any of those things either. But it's interesting, certainly, to know where pigs are and what they're using. And that's some information that people may choose to take into account, I think. We also know that wild pigs could potentially pose some risks to the health of livestock, either commercial pigs or pigs on a hobby farm, for example, or other livestock, since they could introduce some diseases to farmed animals if they're interacting. I know specifically for commercial pigs, this is a concern because we are working quite hard to prevent the introduction of diseases such as African swine fever to North America. In other places like Europe, wild boar do move African swine fever around the continent, and it's reported on regularly. Could adjusting crop plantings based on what you've learned about habitat selection of wild pigs help to decrease the potential for interactions between wild pigs and other livestock? 
Yeah, I definitely think this has a role in those determinants. I mean, obviously, again, we don't have African swine fever yet in Canada, thankfully. So I know that's something they're continually monitoring. And I know Europe is making a lot of strides to limit interaction between livestock and wild pigs to potentially transmit ASF. Pigs are pigs, and it can be hard to decipher because they're generalists, the habitat selection use of pigs to a degree. Again, we're getting a better feel for it now. But I would say if you have livestock, you always run the risk of attracting you know, wildlife, whether that be deer or elk or wild pigs. And so I would say you know, if you're looking to plant crops closer to any of your livestock facilities, I would suggest maybe crops that don't provide as much cover as, say, corn, wheat, and canola. So you're looking at more like legumes and stuff of that nature. I would say flaxseed. But yeah, if you can plant shorter crops around your livestock areas or that are in closer vicinity to your livestock areas, that might help because the habitats are more open, there's less cover, and pigs are less likely to go into them. Again, that being said, at night, it is a bit of a free-for-all because there are no anthropogenic pressures in terms of hunting or agricultural production. But hopefully, again, if you're closer to you know your base of operations for the agricultural side of things near the livestock, more open habitats might potentially prevent less pigs from kind of hanging around your facilities. But again, I can't say that with, you know, a ton of confidence because it's not something we directly looked at. It's just more of an inference from what I know and what we know so far. Yeah, again, it's just kind of something that that may be potentially helpful or something to consider as we look at those areas of wildlife and domestic animal or wildlife and human interface, those are certainly common spots where we have concern about disease spread in all species, really, and and, and for people and wildlife and the environment, you know, under the One Health context in general. It's very dynamic. Every, every part of it is super interesting, and it's hard to pinpoint one thing or another that's going to be particularly beneficial, I guess. As we continue to learn more, we'll have better explanations and better answers and better ways to, to help livestock owners, agricultural the agricultural side of things, pretty much everybody, but uh, it just takes, it takes time and it takes research and we'll get there eventually, but it's a slow process, unfortunately. Well, science moves slowly, I guess, but it's helpful when we have quality and accurate information like this to, to base decision-making and planning off of. I think that's really important. And certainly with wild pigs, you know, they have not only implications for the agricultural side of things, but you know, just within the ecosystem and environmental health, they're potentially quite detrimental. So certainly that that is important as well. Can you tell me, Corey, given your experiences studying wild pigs in Canada, what information do you think would be helpful to investigate in the future? Oh, man, there's a lot. You know, it's hard to pinpoint. <laughs> a lot of it depends on funding and kind of what's most pertinent to the people funding you and, and, and understanding, you know, kind of what they want answered along with what you want answered. I would say continued understanding of habitat use and selection would be great. I think patch size for broadleaf forests is an important question. Again, pigs are such generalists and throughout the globe, you see them using different major cover habitat types. So grassland, wetland, shrubland, forest, riparian areas are all in the literature, major, major cover habitats that pick will take advantage of. And we don't have a ton of broadleaf forests. So is this going to continue to be a thing where they're dependent on broadleaf forests or do they start to shift to different cover habitats? There is an instance in Argentina where pigs are specifically almost exclusively in agricultural lands. So again, they don't necessarily need these cover habitats. They're so adaptive. So we need to continue learning 
I think the movement capabilities of pigs is super interesting. I don't know what Ryan and Ruth kind of have going on currently. I'm a bit out of the loop just because I've moved on and I'm still trying to finish up my three pig publications that I'm working on now. But I think looking at if they haven't done so already, the interaction between pigs with our GPS locations and farms to see potential interactions between livestock and wild pigs is a good place to look. And then I'd also like to see, you know, a, a furthering of my work specifically looking at, you know, if we could get the collars with cameras to kind of make that next step in identifying, yes, pigs are consuming certain crops, and then we can actually point to visual evidence and we can get a sense of how frequently they are. So those are a couple things I'd like to see or hope, you know, we could see in the future. I don't know what they have planned though. Again, there's a lot of stuff you can take into account, you know, effects on species, the environment, again, the agriculture and livestock communities. So there's, there's a lot to choose from and you just kind of got to choose carefully what's most important and what's most pertinent and what's going to help the most for all these stakeholder groups that are involved in answering these questions and the management of the pigs. Certainly, there's always so much more work to do out there, you know. Thanks very much, Corey, for sharing your research results with me today. Yeah, thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. Really appreciate you having me on. I know there is a fair amount of work underway, as you mentioned, with Dr. Brooke uh, and others regarding wild pigs. But this piece seemed particularly relevant as it may enable some planning around management and disease prevention strategies, both for wildlife, but also potentially for farmed animal populations. We'll share some links to Mr. Kramer's research and other information on wild pigs in Canada and where some sightings can be reported on our website at cas.ca and along with this podcast episode. Thanks for joining us. The Animal Health Insights Podcast is a production of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. CAS is a division of Animal Health Canada, and it is broad-based support from livestock sectors and government. CAS brings together data and information from across Canada in order to demonstrate animal health and to guide planning on national animal health priorities. Effective disease surveillance can demonstrate the health of our animals, and it enables prompt action to minimize the negative impacts of disease. Funding is provided through the Agri-Assurance Program under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal-provincial territorial initiative.